Hello and welcome to Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today is part two of A Brief History of America, a perhaps overly ambitious project on my part to sketch out the history of the United States. Uh, In our last episode, where we left off, America was heading into the 20th century, uh, and what a century it'll be. Big century, big century for the United States. So let's talk about that now. The United States at the turn of the 20th century was a nation of approximately 76 million people, compared to about 330 million today. They had a rapidly growing economy, huge amounts of immigration, especially from Europe, and had become a world leader in production of coal and steel and manufacturing. This period, this calm before the storm of the First World War, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, is often called in the United Kingdom the Edwardian period because it immediately followed the Victorian era. In France, it's called La Belle Époque, meaning the nice or the the pretty time. But eventually, Europe was plunged into war in 1914. Following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo on the 28th of June, 1914, the continent, um, all of the major powers of Europe started going to war with each other. On one side were the Allies, and this was made up of the British Empire, France, and the Russian Empire. And on the other side were the Central Powers, and that was Germany and Austria-Hungary. Over the course of the war, other powers got involved, got pulled in. So in the fall of 1914, the Ottoman Empire joined on the side of the Central Powers. Um, This is also called Turkey. Bulgaria joined in 1915, Uh, Romania eventually joined the Allies, but a lot of international observers kept wondering, well, when is the United States going to join? What's going to happen? When the war started in uh, Europe in 1914, the United States declared its neutrality. The president was Woodrow Wilson, and he was a former president of Princeton University and governor of New Jersey. He campaigned on staying out of the war. When he was up for re-election in 1916, his campaign promise was, well, he kept us out of the war. But this uh, state of events, this kind of official neutrality in the United States would not last forever. You see, there were two or three key events that eventually did pull the United States into the war. One of these was the famous sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania. Um, And this happened in 1915. There was this huge passenger liner that was sunk um, just south of Ireland. And over a thousand people went down with the ship. Uh, In terms of the United States, 128 of those people were Americans. So that enraged a lot of Americans. This was in 1915, like I said. But nonetheless, the United States stayed neutral. Um, One of the major kind of social forces pushing for this neutrality to stay out of this European war was two of the largest immigrant groups in the United States, and that is the Germans and the Irish. The Germans not wanting to go to war with their homeland, and the Irish not wanting to participate in any war that would help or support or fight for the British Empire, which they saw as kind of keeping down their interests in Ireland. You see, at this point, 
Ireland had not yet achieved independence from the United Kingdom. So a series of events throughout the war, um, including Germany's use of unrestricted submarine warfare, uh, increased pleas from the British for trade, um, and eventually something called the Zimmerman Telegram. You see, in 1917, Germany uh, kind of had their backs against the wall, and they were willing to kind of do anything to try to break the deadlock on the Western Front. Some of the things they did, on the battlefield at least, were pioneer the use of chemical weapons, so poison gas, and flamethrowers. But internationally, they started waging this, this campaign of what's called unrestricted submarine warfare. And they put out notices in newspapers of neutral nations saying, we are considering the waters around Great Britain to be a war zone. So, you know, sail there at your own risk. In 1917, British intelligence intercepted a telegram from the Imperial German government to the government of Mexico. And in it, the Germans promised the Mexicans that in the event that the United States goes to war with Germany, we would like you to attack the United States and try to regain some of the territory that you had lost in the Mexican-American War, which ended a long time ago in 1848. But still, they were trying to convince the Mexicans that, hey, um, we would like you to take back you know, some of this territory in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, California. And if you do this, we'll give you money, we'll give you weapons, we'll send officers to train your soldiers, stuff of that nature. Well, when the American public found out about this, it was the last straw. I mean, losing passenger ships, um, losing the Lusitania, the Zimmerman telegram, which I just mentioned. I had mentioned in an earlier episode about the First World War that when the Germans invaded Belgium in 1914, they committed a number of atrocities uh, against the civilian population. And this reverberated throughout the United States. Uh, you know, the public was outraged of what these German soldiers were doing. So eventually in April of 1917, the United States joined the war. They joined the side of the allies. And it was just in time too, because the Russian empire had just been knocked out of the war. Uh, so the Eastern front was now at peace. And a lot of allied commanders were worried that now there would be a flood of German soldiers going to the West. And in fact, yes, the Germans had a huge major offensive in 1918. A lot of historians have speculated kind of what would happen if the Americans had not joined the war uh, and had this, this fresh influx of troops, who knows? Uh, some other historians have speculated that the fact that the United States joined the war when peace was eventually declared, it emboldened the British and especially the French to push uh, harsher surrender terms on the Germans than they would have if the United States had not joined the war. And perhaps this may have uh, led to some of the bitterness that led to World War II. In any case, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was very much an idealist and a devout Christian, he um, set up the League of Nations at the end of the war, which was kind of like the predecessor to the United Nations. The American casualties in the war were relatively light um, compared to the nations of Europe. And during the First World War, the United States of America went from being a debtor nation to a creditor nation. 
So they emerged from the war in a pretty strong position, um, especially given the fact that a lot of the old European empires had collapsed. And after the war, peace uh, returned to the United States, and we have a period called the Roaring Twenties. It's also called the Jazz Age. Um, it was a time where the economy was rebuilt, but at the same time, you had this huge wave uh, sweep through the country called the Temperance Movement. And they were pushing for something called Prohibition. And this would have a huge effect on, on, on the United States during the 20s and 30s. All right, let's talk about Prohibition. First things first, if you've never seen the movie The Untouchables with Kevin Costner and Sean Connery, please go see it. Prohibition started in 1919. Um, you see a lot of these people in the temperance movement who wanted to make America dry. So there were two factions on the Prohibition issue, the dries and the wets. They kind of rode the wave of patriotism that swept the United States during the First World War and used it for their, their own purposes. Um, so how did they do that? Well, one, they argued during the war that consuming alcohol was unpatriotic because the materials used to make it, things like wheat and barley, uh, were, were desperately needed for the war effort. They also kind of... Uh, either consciously or subconsciously preyed on Americans' fears uh, of immigrants, especially the Germans and the Irish, to kind of get there, to promote their agenda. The Germans and the Irish um, immigrants in the United States at the time, and, you know, probably still, had a very strong drinking culture. And this was seen as, like, immoral, especially because these were the two main populations that were opposing American involvement in the war. So for those two reasons, kind of, we need the resources um, and, well, look, the people who are most against prohibition are also the ones who don't want us to be in this war, this war that we have to win. Uh, temperance had been a force in American politics for a while, but it was really after the First World War that they were able to uh, finally kind of achieve their goals. Uh, one of the major groups in this was called the Anti-Saloon League, and interestingly, uh, women were some of the most uh, powerful voices in this, in this political movement, despite in other areas of politics uh, and policymaking, you know, they didn't really have that much of a voice. So what happened was there was this law called the Volstead Act that came into effect in 1919. And it said, quote, no person shall on or after the date when the 18th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States goes into effect, manufacture, sell, barter, transport, import, export, deliver, furnish, or possess any intoxicating liquor except as authorized in this act, and all the provisions of this act shall be liberally construed to the end that the use of intoxicating liquor as a beverage may be prevented. So, two things I'd like to say about that. First, it talks about, so basically you are not allowed to buy, sell, uh, transport, or make alcohol. There's nothing in the rules that says you can't consume it. So before this act came into effect, a lot of people, especially rich people, 
they stocked, absolutely stockpiled uh, their basements and cellars with huge amounts of alcohol. So there was kind of a run on liquor right before this came into effect. So that's interesting. Um, and and obviously, you know, rich people were better able to weather the, the, the kind of process of prohibition. Uh, secondly, it says, except as authorized in this act, uh, there were exemptions. So one of them was for medical purposes. And you saw a huge amount of doctors during the Prohibition era in the United States writing prescriptions for whiskey. Uh, and a lot of these people weren't even really doctors. They would forge their papers to impersonate doctors to get whiskey. So that's very interesting. Um, there was a huge war between um, prohibition agents, treasury agents, um, uh, charged with enforcing the Volstead Act, and people called bootleggers uh, who were smuggling alcohol into the United States or making it secretly within the country. Uh, one of the theories I've read about why they were called bootleggers is because they would they would smuggle goods, you know, in their boots. So that's kind of uh, one, I don't know, theory as to why they were called that. Uh, NASCAR, the National Association of Stock Car Auto Racing, uh, got its start from bootleggers who would soup up their cars to avoid uh, what, what were called revenuers. Revenuers was another word for these treasury agents. Well, prohibition at its very heart was meant to combat, you know, public drunkenness, alcoholism, and the crime that results from that. You know, so things like uh, theft and assault and murder that the Anti-Saloon League said was, was caused by this just scourge of alcohol on the United States. Um, but when you really look at it, the history of prohibition actually led to a spike in crime in the United States. Due to prohibition um, and from Mussolini's crackdowns in Italy, you see in 1922, a fascist dictator called Benito Mussolini came to power in Italy. And one of the things about him was he didn't tolerate any threats to his power. And the Italian mafia, um, which was very strong, especially in southern Italy, um, places like Sicily and Calabria, Calabria, um, they were very strong there. So he cracked down. He used the power of the government to crack down. Well, a lot of those Italian gangsters made their way to the United States. And this led to the rise of the Cosa Nostra, which is in American history, the Italian mafia. They became firmly established and organized crime became a major problem in cities like Chicago and New York. The era was often called the Roaring Twenties because of the speakeasies. The speakeasies were these underground secret clubs where, you know, a lot of times you would go up to the door and a little slot would slide open and you had to say a password and you would go. And it was a place where you could relax, have alcohol and speak easy. You know, you could, you could just have a good time and relax. This was huge in the cities. Uh, throughout Prohibition, temperance movements and the dry movement were... Uh, usually just much stronger in rural America, and that's kind of where their support base was. Whereas the wet movement or the people that wanted to drink and repeal prohibition was usually stronger in the cities. Well, in September 1929, the U.S. stock market collapsed and huge amounts of money were lost, jobs were lost, 
and banks were swarmed by anxious citizens. A lot of these Wall Street bankers that lost everything, this is kind of like a famous story of, of this stock market crash, is they would throw themselves out the windows and land on the streets of New York. Uh, I don't know how many people actually did that, but that's kind of one of the stories from that time. The Great Depression started, and the Great Depression pretty much lasted throughout the 1930s, and one of the worst episodes of the Great Depression was something called the Dust Bowl. Due to decades of poor farming practices, uh, combined with the extermination of the buffalo and a severe drought, the grasslands and farms of the Great Plains uh, just completely dried up, and the soil was blown away by harsh winds, creating these huge, huge dust storms. And, you know, if this had happened in a pre-industrial, pre-scientific uh, pre time, you would almost think it was the end of the world. I very much encourage you to look up uh, pictures of the Dust Bowl. You see these huge waves of darkness that come on the horizon. And when the dust storm would hit you, it would blot out the sun and it would be like darker than night at one in the afternoon. It was just, it was just crazy. States like Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Texas are completely devastated. These huge dust storms rage across the continent and um, thousands are, are forced to flee for greener places like California. A lot of these people were called Okies. Uh, so refugees to California stuff were called Okies because a lot of them were from Oklahoma. Finally, finally, in 1933, in part to try to revive the economy, prohibition is repealed. And President Roosevelt, um, who came to power like right when the Great Depression was getting really bad, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he promised a new deal for the American people. He made all these federal agencies to put people to work. A lot of these huge public uh, works projects, they tried to rehabilitate the soil. They built bridges, they built dams, they built roads, railroads, everything, anything to put people back to work. Well, what finally ended the Great Depression uh, in the United States? It was the Second World War. You see, in the 30s, a guy in Europe called Hitler uh, had been kind of stomping all over the place and uh, trampling over a lot of the neighboring countries. Well, Hitler's kind of boldness, uh, kind of in thumbing his nose at everybody, finally came and caught up to him when the British Empire and France declared war on him. It, on September 1st, 1939, German soldiers invaded Poland. And Hitler at the time actually did not expect the Allies to declare war. He thought Poland would be just another situation like Czechoslovakia or, or reoccupying the Ruhr or the Rhineland or remilitarizing, all of these things that the British Empire and the French had let him get away with. But, you know, that was it. That was it. That was the red line. So Great Britain and France declared war on Germany two days after the invasion of Poland. So they declared war on September 3rd, 1939. Axis forces, uh, when I say Axis, um, remember in the First World War, Germany was part of a faction called the Central Powers. Well, in World War II, they were called the Axis. And it was, uh, this time it was Germany and Italy. <clears throat> they eventually overrun Western Europe and France surrenders in 1940 leaving the British Empire as the sole remaining nation on the side of the Allies to oppose the powers, the Axis powers. 
and they would actually fight alone until the summer of 1941 when the Soviet Union got involved and December of 1941 when the United States got involved. Oh, see, I just, I just teased it a little bit. You see, on December 7th, 1941, uh, which, according to President Roosevelt, was a date which will live in infamy. <laughs> I don't know if he sounded exactly like that, but whatever. Japanese forces mounted a surprise attack uh, on the U.S. facilities at Pearl Harbor. And the Pacific Theater of World War II opened up at that point as Japanese soldiers rampaged through Chinese, French, British, and U.S. holdings in the Far East. Uh, World War II was the biggest armed conflict of the 20th century. Well, actually, all of human history. Um, and it raged on until 1945. You see, following key victories at places like El Alamein in Egypt, Midway in the Pacific, where the Japanese lost a bunch of carriers, Stalingrad, uh, which was a little city on the Volga where the world he held its breath, <clears throat> Guadalcanal, Kursk, and the D-Day landings, uh, the Allies eventually won the war. Japanese surrender is accelerated by the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and this is hugely controversial even to this day. Uh, a lot of historians have said that this was a war crime and these devastating weapons didn't have to be used. Uh, people on the other side of the issue said that the Americans had to do this because uh, they had seen the resistance of the Japanese people and they had seen how committed they were to dying for their country. And American military planners were just horrified by the idea of invading the Japanese home islands and the immense immense number of casualties that would result from this um other uh, historians have speculated that one of the reasons why they really pushed ahead to drop the bombs was some of the forward-looking planners in the united kingdom france the united states they had seen that already their next rival would be the soviet union and this was a way to use the current war to kind of maybe try to prevent the next war so they used uh, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to show the Soviets, hey, you know, look at this weapon that we have. Um, it would only be a few short years before the Soviets got their own atomic weapons, uh, in part through espionage. But in any case, in 1945, uh, in May, Germany's knocked out of the war. Uh, Italy was already out. And then in September, uh, Japan surrenders. The victory in Europe was called VE Day and the victory in the Pacific was called VJ Day. And there's a lot of famous photos of soldiers coming home. Uh, the period that follows this, so now we're talking 1945 to 1991. Uh, so there's definitely a series of decades here. This is called the Cold War. Major world powers like the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan took a heavy toll from the war and they needed time and money to recover. Uh, one of the ways that they did recover was the United States enact something called the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. And they practice what is often called by political scientists dollar diplomacy. Uh, so they, they were trying to win over the countries of Europe uh, by giving them consumer goods and money to help them. 
One of the reasons they did this is because they were they were afraid that if people were starving, unemployed, the countries were ruined, they would embrace communism as a solution to their problems. And they didn't want that to happen because the Soviet Union was now their major rival. This was a bipolar world where you had two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, which is also called the USSR. And a lot of times people are like, I see, I see that everywhere, USSR. Like, you know, what does that mean? It's the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Um, these two superpowers uh, kind of attracted uh, countries to kind of their sphere of influence. So in 1949, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is founded. And it's led by the United States, uh, and they have allies like the United Kingdom and France and a lot of other kind of European countries joined later. To oppose this, the, the Soviet Union started their own faction in 1955 called the Warsaw Pact, which was basically the Soviet Union and a lot of these like Eastern European countries uh, like Poland and Hungary, stuff like that. During the Cold War, uh, there were a number of what's called proxy wars. Um, proxy wars were during the Cold War when the United States and the Soviet Union would oppose each other in a third world country, a third world country that was typically struggling between, you know, a capitalist faction and a communist faction, and the superpowers would each support one of those factions. So the three biggest proxy wars of the Cold War, in my opinion, are the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the war in Afghanistan. Probably the closest that these superpowers came to uh, like a hot war, like actually going to war, was the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And it brought the two sides extremely close to an actual war. The Soviet economy eventually erodes by the late 1980s because of runaway military spending uh, and rampant corruption and a, and a lot of inefficiency in key industries. On top of this, there were independence movements in Poland and Germany, and these were steadily gaining ground and eventually succeeded. You know, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. The Soviet Union is formally dissolved on December 26, 1991, leaving the United States as the world's only remaining superpower. And now we get into the 1990s. Ah, the 1990s a time of snap bracelets and boy bands. That brief period of peace between the Cold War and the post 9-11 era. Uh, a lot of huge technological changes in the 1990s completely revolutionized the way people lived, moved, and worked. And uh, chief among these, these technological improvements were personal home computers, uh, the internet, and cellular telephones, which in the early 90s, it, they truly, it was just a brick with an antenna. Um, because of global economic trends, reduced defense spending, and the dot-com boom, the US ends the decade with a budget surplus. Um, the 1990s were a time of uh, relative peace and prosperity in the United States. Uh, no major wars, 
a lot of domestic improvements, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's so interesting now that I think about it. It's almost like the calm before the storm that I mentioned a bit earlier before the First World War, because uh, on September 11th, 2001, everything changed when there was uh, a series of terrorist attacks uh, on the United States, the most well-known, and I think the biggest in popular memory were the ones that took place in New York City. Uh, many historians are, are still unsure as to what to call the current era, um, but it is, I would say, widely agreed that these September 11th terrorist attacks ushered in uh, a new era for America that was distinctly different uh, than the 1990s and obviously different from the Cold War. Um, it completely changed kind of the views that a lot of Americans had about uh, themselves and their relationship with the world and the government itself implemented a number of changes. Uh, some of the biggest things that we've seen so far from the post 9-11 uh, era uh, have been the war on terror, the rise of China, uh, and the return of a hostile Russia, uh, hostile to the interests of the United States. These are key trends during this period. The war on terror, uh, some of the, the, the key aspects of that have been kind of American operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, uh, stuff like that. China was um, still relatively poor in the 90s, but, it, you know, moving into the 21st century, there were actually a few years where they had double-digit growth numbers. Uh, and now they're, they're really starting to assert their, their authority, you know, uh, over a lot of their neighbors. Um, we're seeing them push quite strongly against places like Taiwan, Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, stuff like that. The United States, since the Second World War, has had this uh, entrenched interest in the Far East, in the Pacific, uh, especially in Japan, you know, which is one of the key U.S. allies. So this kind of rise of China is definitely a challenge uh, for American political leaders kind of heading into the 21st century. And when I say return of a hostile Russia, in the 90s, uh, after the Cold War was over and Russia was under the leadership of Boris Yeltsin, there were a lot of people on both sides that kind of tried to start this new era where, oh, hey, you know, the Russians are our friends now. Uh, but when Vladimir Putin came to power in the early 21st century, this kind of goodwill started to uh, slowly disintegrate. And we've seen over the past several years, more and more Russia um, testing its boundaries, kind of uh, getting involved in international situations with interests that are counter to those of the West. And, and when I say the West, I mean, you know, this traditional block of nations led by the United States. Uh, places like the United States, uh, Canada, the United Kingdom, France, you know, places like that. Uh, in 2008, the United States elected its first African-American president, uh, Barack Obama. And his signature policy, probably the biggest part of his presidential legacy, is a healthcare bill, which is known to the people as Obamacare. And this was passed in 2010, and it extended healthcare to millions of Americans. Uh, that, that had previously uh, not uh, had any health insurance. The United States is unique um, in the 21st century of being you know, really the only first world power developed nation, uh, Western nation, like whatever you want to call it, that does not have universal health care. Um, 
So that's kind of, and actually that's still an issue that's really big in the United States. There's still lots of people on both sides kind of fighting over this. Um, there were a number of technological improvements going into the 21st century that built on the previous, uh, you know, technological innovations that I had mentioned in the 1990s. So things like the internet, personal computers, and cell phones, now in the 21st century, a lot of that technology is being improved upon to develop things like drones, electric cars, social media, and smartphones. And these continue to radically alter the way people live and work. Um, so here we are in 2020, uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, which I have no doubt will go down as a major event in U.S. history. Um, I've often said to people when we talk about the pandemic, I said, you know, I really have no doubt that this is something that people will tell their kids about and, and they'll tell their grandkids about, you know, oh, remember the, you know, the, the great pandemic of 2020 or, or whatever it ends up being called. Uh, I think that's just the latest chapter in American history, kind of the, the latest challenge that the American people kind of have to figure out together, um, like how to deal with it, what to do about it. And, you know, who can say what will be the lasting effects of the coronavirus pandemic? Um, sometimes you can start to see the effects after a major event within a year or two. Sometimes it takes uh, 10 years. Sometimes it takes a hundred years before you really start to see uh, a lot of the lasting effects. Um, oftentimes, if you look hard enough, you can see the lasting effects of things that happened so, so long ago. I've argued so many times that the First World War still casts a very long shadow on the modern world. But in any case, you know, enough reflection, enough... Uh, <laughs> enough theorizing or speculation. Um, that's pretty much all I have for the post 9-11 era. And that concludes our 400 year journey through American history. I really hope it was interesting and that you learned something. Uh, I want to thank you so, so much for listening. And you've been listening to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to our new podcast email, bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. All one word. And uh, again, thank you so much for listening. Bye.